Well, good morning one more time. By the time we get done here, it won't be morning anymore. It'll be afternoon, I promise. I don't know if that's a give. I don't know if you want me to be faithful to that, but I'm going to give it my shot. Um, well, it is great to see all of you. As we uh, uh, mentioned earlier, we are continuing in our series entitled Joyful. Uh, that is uh, derived from Paul's letter to the saints at the Philippian church. And so before we begin, let's pray and ask for God's help for us all. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, it is an incredible privilege to stand before your people and before you and to be able to serve in this, in this way. I shudder at the prospect that you would use such incomplete and imperfect people to share and participate in such a beautiful and powerful work. But it is uh, definitely a declaration of not our individual prowess or goodness. It is a declaration of your power, your sufficiency, and how not even our incompleteness can hinder your work. Uh, I ask, oh God, that we today would experience all of what you have to offer us, that your word would not return to you void. I know it won't because you declared it. It doesn't need my push or help. I just, Lord God, would you just open our eyes to the reality of it happening, that we would worship you accordingly. Um, I know that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and I know that it is living, and it divides to the, uh, to the pulling apart, dividing of soul and spirit, the thoughts and the intents. Lord God, and just the, the deepest parts of us, things that we didn't even know could be dissected, your word is capable of doing that. Oh God, would you allow us to experience that in our own lives this morning? Your word says of itself that it is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Lord God, would you allow us to experience the full furnishing of the word through this adventure that you've ordained called preaching? Would you, O oh God, allow us to experience exactly what Paul said, that when he came in amongst uh, the saints there, that he claimed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified so that people's faith would not rest in the words of men or words of wisdom, but in the power of God and in a clear demonstration of your Holy Spirit. Lord God, would you allow us to experience that this morning in our lives and in our own midst as we hand this moment over to you. And it is our earnest prayer in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So as we take on Philippians chapter 3 this morning, I want to just kind of, you may already know it. I know you know it. You're a, you're a smart group. But for the Philippian saints, they would not have known this as chapter 3. They would have simply have known it as yet another paragraph in a letter that had been written to them by a person who had a very profound and, and humongous impact in their lives. I want us to just kind of, if we could, as best we can, kind of get in that first century mindset that um, there's a brother who shared the gospel, came to your town. Perhaps your, your parents heard him preach, and they gave their lives to Christ out of all kinds of all manner of ungodliness and darkness. And then that same family has now shared the gospel with you, and you want to meet this person who came and, and preached in this way. Perhaps your church has been supporting this person that you found out was in prison for just trying to honor God and do what's right. But here it is. He's now on effectively what I would consider to be death row based on the descriptions of uh, what we call Philippians chapter 1. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Here it is. You're at uh, the Sunday gathering. 
And as would be the tradition in the first century, someone would stand up and read a selection from what we call, you and I call, uh, the Old Testament. And then alongside that, afterwards, they would say, man, we just got a letter from Paul. Everyone's leaning forward because they haven't heard from Paul in a while. Think about this now. There's no email. There's no newspaper. There's no cell phone. There's no, there's no, there's no television. There's no, there's no text. There's no FaceTime. There's no, there's no Paul sitting uh, in his prison cell uh, with, a, with a scrappy photo tucked between the mattress so that, so that the guards don't find it and with kind of, you know, several faces of people that he's influenced at the church and he's just kind of reminiscing. We don't, we don't have that. We don't, the camera's not been invented yet. And we, 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 Paul's ability and their ability to know what's happening in the lives of one another uh, uh, takes a matter of days, weeks, if not even months, just to even correspond, right? Paul writes a letter, and then he finally finds someone to give it to, and that letter takes days or so to get there. And then, of course, if there is going to be a response, then there's days of anticipation waiting to get one back. It's always a, a beautiful surprise until you open the envelope and see what the issues are in that local church and what you need to respond to. One of the unique characteristics of the letter to the Philippian church it is one of a few letters that is not fueled by raging issues within the local church. Many of the letters in the New Testament are referred to as letters of occasion because there is an occasion. There's a reason or a doctrinal issue that is being addressed. That's not the case with the Philippian letter. The Philippian letter is actually, at large, a thank you note for the great support that they have delivered to Paul during his time of unfortunate incarceration. And embedded within that uh, thank you letter is, of course, some doctrinal content and even so uh, some, some proactive type of warnings against certain types of disunity. But, but by and large, he's not doing any firefighting uh, or any, uh, any doctrinal reconstruction in this letter. You can kind of feel that. So they would not have known of a chapter 3. So when I read these opening words of chapter 3, I want you to feel something. Here it is. Chapter 3 begins with these words, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Finally. He says, finally. Meaning that these ideas that he's about to posit belong to a series of ideas that he has been kind of painting throughout the course of his letter. Finally, rejoice. Now, think about this now. Think about this. As I said earlier, here it is. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes this letter, these words of, of affirmation, these words of encouragement that they should rejoice in the Lord. This is the stuff of almost every Christmas uh, card. This is the stuff of all of the, the decor that used to sell for our walls down at Lifeway. This is the stuff of every, you know, little placemat that grandma used to, used to make for us, right? To rejoice in the Lord. It's a pretty common term. But I want you just for a moment to consider the source of who is asking us as a church to rejoice. That's the title of today's message is Consider the Source. I want you to consider the source. You're talking about a person who, based on their current circumstances, in my personal opinion and your personal opinion, has no real reason to rejoice, not based on our knowledge of their circumstances. Again, being at a great distance from a group of people who he loves dearly and greatly because we've seen his words and how he gushes with affection for them in chapter 2 and in chapter 1. Here is a person who told us outright in the opening paragraph of his letter that not only is he in prison, 
but he is also uh, has an impending death sentence and that there are people on the outside who are intentionally preaching the gospel, not because they believe in Jesus, but because they want to increase the ire and the frustration and the anger of the arresting officials toward him because that's why they're angry and they've arrested him because of the advancement of the gospel. Paul says that there's people who are preaching out of pretense. This is, this is the man who says, rejoice. This is the person who is cut off from people that he loves. Paul is a, has to be a deeply relational guy. If nothing else, he loves to travel. And he's under arrest. He's stuck in this one place. Rejoice based on what premise, Paul. And so that's why I think it's very important for us to pay careful attention to this simple appeal and this exhortation to rejoice in the Lord. Consider the source. How can this man be in any place of rejoicing? And what can we learn from him? I mean, let's just be honest. Our situation today is not nearly as grievous as that of the Apostle Paul, but some of us have difficulty rejoicing and, and enjoying worship because we had a little bit of a disagreement with somebody we were riding in the car with. Or perhaps we just uh, stayed at the traffic light a little too long when it turned green and somebody behind us went pop, pop, and now our whole attitude for the rest of the day is gone. We can't even hear the song because we're like this. That's what's wrong with Atlanta. Perhaps on your way in, you weren't able to get the full complement of caffeine that you feel like you deserve because your barista was taking too long. They give you three to four pumps when you ask for five of caramel or whatever the case may be. Think about all the things that so regularly disrupt our ability to rejoice and, quote, unquote, have a good day. And then this guy, who's got some really aggressive circumstances, life inhibiting circumstances that I don't think anybody in this room is currently working through. You may have some real stuff that you're, that you're managing. Happy birthday, Derek, by the way. Facebook is powerful. <laughs> but you may have some real stuff that you're working through, but, but, but I don't think any of it is as weighty as what the Apostle Paul is working through. And then he has the, the nerve or he has the conviction to say, rejoice in the Lord. What allows him to do that? And that's what I want to explore today. I want you to consider the source. I want you to consider the person who is asking us to rejoice. And then I want us to consider the source again, because what is the source of his joy? I want you to consider both of those. And as we do that, I think we need to explore the following. Or this is my argument this morning, that rejoicing in the Lord should be born out of my confidence and not my consequences. But I need to explore exactly where my confidence should come from. Because the Apostle Paul says here in these opening verses, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write these things, same things to you is not troublesome for me, but, and it is safe for you to look out for dogs, to look out for evildoers, to look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So if he puts no confidence in the flesh, where exactly is Paul's confidence? that gives him this great conviction to tell us that we should rejoice in the Lord in light of all that is going on in his life. Consider the source. I want us to deeply consider not only the source of Paul's joy, but to deeply consider also the source of our own joy. What is it that enables us to rejoice? As we look at, as we look at this letter, I want you to kind of note 
the letter at large, not just the passage. I want you to note the letter. There are four very profound convictions that leap off the page that all of you are familiar with in the book of Philippians. Four, four convictions. Each one found in one of, of the chapters. Number one, in chapter one, in light of Paul's impending doom, he says these words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Consider the source. That's where this guy gets it from. That's his core conviction. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My whole life is modeled around Christ and then to die is actually a promotion or an upgrade, not a secession or a diminution of my overall life's trajectory and objective. That was what he said in chapter one. In chapter two, uh, the apostle Paul said, oh, and let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? Who puts the needs of others be ahead of his own. That's one of the most, more iconic phrases from Paul in chapter two. In chapter three, this one, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. One of the more iconic convictions of Paul that undergirds his great confidence that he has in Christ. And then in chapter four, we all know it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me to also be anxious for nothing, but to submit everything to God in prayer and thanksgiving. So you've got these four core convictions that undergird Paul's confidence that gives him the ability to say to us, rejoice. I want some of that. I don't know about you, but, 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 but whether I need to, to craft or, or, or grab hold of these three to four core convictions in my own life, I want some of this kind of confidence. Well, Paul further unpacks where this confidence comes from. Did he read it in a book by his favorite author and just choose to adopt these ideas? No. I believe that there is a, there is a, a, a living for the Lord that has produced these convictions in him. And I want to walk us through some of, the, some of the aspects of Paul's life that I believe that we could learn from and we can also move on that would produce equal depth of conviction in us so that our confidence is not based on what we built, but based on what the Lord is building in us. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He moves on and he says, look out for dogs. This is kind of an epithet for those who are Gentiles that are outside the body. Be on the lookout for them. Be on the lookout for evildoers. Be on the lookout for those who mutilate the flesh. What he's talking about are those people who have placed faith in what you do with the physical body as a statement and declaration of one's religious affiliation and alignment. There were those creeping into church, onto the church on a regular basis saying, if you really got the real deal with God, you need to pay attention to the new moon and you need to celebrate this feast. If you got a real relationship with God, you need to get circumcised. If you got a real relationship with God, you need to follow these rules. If you got a real relationship with God, you got to keep up with these laws. And so Paul says, uh-uh, uh-uh, very carefully, don't pay any attention to that. Be on the lookout for people who say that because that's not where your faith and trust and confidence should be based. Paul goes on to say, we worship the spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, here's the biggie. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So he says, if anybody wants to play the confidence in the flesh game, I carry the trump card. I've got the big joker. And here it is. He says, I have, uh, uh, I have all the more reason to have confidence in my flesh. Listen to this list. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. First and foremost, I came from a, uh, a legally compliant family. 
He's eight days old. I came from a family with the right background, the right pedigree and the right culture. That's what he's saying. Think about this, the, the right culture and background. If anybody's going to have confidence in their fleshly accomplishments and their doings, it would be me. He says, not only that, but, but um, I came out of the tribe of Benjamin. I know my lineage. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. When it comes to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm not just a person who keeps the law. I'm not just a person who has kept it. I am a captain of the law. I'm the captain of the offense when it comes to the law in the ancient world. I have studied it and become an expert in it. I am literally on the, like the center of the offensive line. I'm not only a keeper of the law, but I'm keeping others from breaking it. You do know that Pharisees would create additional levels of law, fence laws, so that they could safeguard Israel from even encroaching on, the, on the God's law. So they would create another set of laws as a buffer. He says, I'm that guy. Subject matter expert in everything that you've read in your current Bibles, the Old Testament, not only do I know it well, but I'm safeguarding it and creating other laws to complement it. He says, if anybody can, can, can put a business card on the table to say that you understand and know how to live out of law, it would be me. Well, just to let you know that, that I'm not just a person who had a lot of head knowledge about the law and that I was actually following through on the execution of the law, he says, concerning zeal. I was a persecutor of the church. In other words, I didn't just look out the window of my living room and go, mm -mm -mm, look at these Christians. They've departed from the law. They're serving a God other than the one true and living God because that's what Paul thought prior to his, con prior to his conversion. He didn't just look out the window and shake his head at Christians. He actively worked to destroy the church at large. He says concerning zeal, I can one-up everybody else in the room. But yet I don't consider any of those accomplishments culturally, academically, or occupationally to be a reason for my confidence in God. That's amazing. And so it brings about my first point, that confidence comes from the quality of my worship, not the accumulation of my works. Now, we all know what it means or how it is that we can put confidence in something else, right? As a default setting, before you look around the room and start thinking about other people who do this, or you start wondering who else should be here for this message, or, ooh, can I get a tape after the service? I'm going to send this to my aunt. <laughs> I want you to think carefully and clearly that all of us have a default setting of placing more confidence in the things that we've bought and we've built than anything else. I tell the story often, many of you who know me, you see me around town, I got this uh, really old Toyota Tundra. It's like a second generation Toyota Tundra. It's got it raised off the ground, got some big ugly tires on it. I changed out the exhaust system, it just sounds really aggressive. And when I'm in that thing, I feel so confident. So confident, right? I, I, I literally, I told the first service, like I could, I could drive into the Grand Canyon headlong with my one arm out the window and be like, yeah, I'll see y'all on the other side. Like I love my Tundra, so confident. But I used to drive, or before the Tundra, I had a Honda Civic. And I just remember, like, every time somebody would come squealing up behind me on I-20, I'm like, oh, my God, you're going to kill me. But not in the Tundra. I, even, I got an aftermarket bumper, just a steel bar. I'm daring people to tailgate. <laughs> come get you some of this. People move out of the way. They slow down. Nobody, and, and then I have another car. And in the Civic, people used to, in the Civic, people used to cut me off and jump in front of me. They knew they could outrun me. And then I got another car, and they ain't no outrunning that one. Nobody races me. 
Nobody tries me. I have an automatic buffer around at all times. And it is amazing. I'm the same guy that they tried to run off the road last week. But now I'm in this other vehicle, and I've got this whole new confidence. I don't know if you felt that. Maybe you don't have, like, I don't know, cars, plural, just one, but whatever, uh, or raggedy truck. But have you ever left the house with your iPhone kind of partially charged? Got in the car and realized you didn't have a charger there either? Get to a place and it's like, man, I'm at 30% and I still got like 19 hours worth of day left. <laughs> you ever felt that? Same person, different amount of juice in your phone. You get to a place and then your phone goes completely black on you. You ever felt how totally disconnected, cut off, and unable and unconfident, if that's a word, lacking confidence you felt when that phone goes out? Isn't that amazing? So, so you know what I'm talking about, how we can place confidence and feel a certain sense of connectedness and security through something very simple. And we didn't even know we had confidence in these things until they eroded, until they expired, until they lost their power. Did you hear me? I'm not talking about phones and trucks and civics. I'm talking about there are things in this life into which we have placed great confidence and we don't even know it because they have yet to run out of juice. They have yet to be tried. They have yet to be checked. They have yet to be challenged. Like, I really didn't know that I believed in my phone like that until it was, like, not available. And, like, I'm running around town with, with, the, with the, what, the cable gesture in my hand, like, cable, juice, looking for ways to connect you. You got a brick? I mean, asking random people at restaurants, hey, I noticed you got a lot of outlets on the wall. Anybody here use the iPhone? Because I just don't want to be disconnected. But, but, but again, I'm talking about a phone, but there's some other stuff that we do this with in life and we don't even know it. Why? Because it has yet to erode. It has yet to expire. And I believe that Paul's affirmation is this, that the, the, the confidence that we should have should come from the quality of my worship, which is how I believe in God and what I believe and think about God, not the accumulation of my works. We've already read the accumulation of Paul's works as he talked about all the things that he built when he was during his season in Judaism whether it was cultural accomplishments or even comparative performance. That's a big one, too. Comparative performance gives us a sense of security as well. Have you ever maybe thought about sharing the gospel or tried to share the gospel with someone and their immediate rebuttal was, that's not for me? That's for, like, the drug uh, dealers and the killers and the pushers. Like, I I'm not a super-duper bad person. I don't need that. I haven't hit rock bottom yet. I'm not that bad. I don't need Jesus. That's for people that are totally out there. And I always wonder, what do, what do like the drug dealers and the killers say when you share the gospel with them? Who do they, who's on the bottom of their list comparatively? But the bottom line is this. Like we all have this comparative performance measure. And this is what Paul is looking at. He said, hey, when, if I was relying on comparative performance, I would be at the top of the heap. But I do not place any confidence in those accomplishments. We are those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. When I talk about the quality of my worship, Jesus put it this way, if I want to take a look at it. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will, call, will, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking people who will worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Paul doubles down on this when he says, we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. The quality of my worship, a worship check would be this. Is it driven by the Spirit and does it draw accurate attention to the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it draw an accurate picture of Jesus? Is it just melodic phrases or does it say something? Does it affirm something about Jesus that is really true about him? If someone were to hear me worship, would it raise their curiosity about the excellence of Christ? It is my worship quality. And so if you are the kind of person, and hear this, if you're the kind of person that finds your joy in regular flux, I would say to me and to you that our confidence in some way must be in something related to the flesh. Because when our confidence is in the flesh, our joy will always be in flux. Because the moment that something tampers with where we have placed confidence, our joy fluctuates. When God is performing according to our dreams and answering all of our prayers and fulfilling all of our needs as we have presented them to him, our joy is crazy high. But the moment that we feel like God has gone on a break or maybe not listening to us, then our joy is at an all-time low. And if that be the case, there's a great possibility that I, I'll put it on me so you don't feel too guilty, that I have shifted my confidence away from the Christ into something of the flesh, something that I built, something that I bought. Is my confidence in my own faith in God? Like, I believe I'm a real robust prayer. And if God ain't coming through, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, so now my faith is really in my faith, not necessarily in the Christ. So the second leg of, of Paul's work here in verses 7 through 11 says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may, here it is, this is the biggie, you don't want to miss this for your community group test, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his suffering becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Confidence, first and foremost, comes from the quality of my worship, not the accumulation of my works. That's a place where God wants to call us into. Confidence comes from uh, a constant reevaluation, thank you, of everything in the light of the cross. Notice how Paul said, notice what Paul says. He says, everything that I accomplish, not everything you accomplish, everything that I accomplish I have then considered that to be lost. So he's constantly reevaluating his life in light of the cross, in light of the work of Jesus. It's just constantly shedding light on. He says, oh, man, yeah, I was born on the eighth day. Oh, wow, I've accomplished all these things in Judaism. But he's constantly holding that up, the light, the, 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 the scrutiny of the cross, and saying, Lord, look into this area of my life and tell me if this is really a place where I should have confidence. And I believe that very much so we should do the same thing. Let me tell you where you're already doing it. This is not a foreign exercise. If anybody in here has set a goal, whether it be financial freedom or whether it be to be like a more fit person in 2022, let me tell you what you do. The moment that you adopt a large, big goal, a preferred picture of your own personal future, you know what you do? If you're serious about your goals, every single thing that you do in the meantime before you get there gets evaluated in light of that. If you are serious, you say, man, I will lose 50 pounds, and I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be whatever, I'm going to be high school skinny or whatever the new phrase is, right? You know what happens? You'll come back here on relationship row, and you'll be like this, oh, 
not donuts. I'll just have some tap water. Well, I'll say, hey, you know, you want to go out to Avondale Pizza Cafe? And you'll go. But you'll look at the menu and you'll be like, oh, jalapeno poppers, Caesar salad. Everything gets reevaluated. Everything, the time of morning that you wake up gets evaluated in light of the ultimate goal. If you're a person that's serious about getting your finances under control, guess what happens? Every single thing. The kids will ask for ice cream. You're like, man, that's, that's 425. I could buy a whole cart, a gallon from Wayfair. And, uh, oh, not Wayfair, they don't sell ice cream, but uh, Food Depot. And I could just, not, no, no kids, we're not having that. But have you felt that? You've evaluated all of the in-between of the little milestones in light of the big thing where you're going. And so the Bible says for people that are fully placing their confidence in Christ, that we are growing to a place of viewing all of our life's movements in light of the cross. And then here, and here's how we, and here's what the evaluation looks like. Does this move or does this action, how does it, how does it cause me to know him and the power of his resurrection? That's what Paul said. That's where I'm getting it from, right? You read it with me. If I'm going through some season of difficulty, none of my difficulties and my sufferings are just uh, estranged from the orbit of my Christianity. How does this suffering allow me to share in Christ's suffering? This is the, the evaluative question that we're asking. And then every experience and every move that I make, how is this causing me to become more like him? And if you're having difficulty remembering those, remember this one big idea. Does this thing, does this complete me? Or does it compete with what God is trying to do in me? Does it complete me or does it compete with what, excuse me, does it compete with what God is doing in me or does it complete me? This is a great question that we should ask if we're evaluating things in light of the cross and that's really what we put our confidence. Now what I love about Paul's next statement is this. In verses 12 through 14, I would have fully, in reading this letter, have received, well, well, Paul's, of course, the expert in this area. He's the big apostle. But then he goes in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, confidence, does, confidence comes from contending for what matters for eternity. These are the three distinct areas where Paul seems to derive confidence, for contending what matters in eternity. Now think about this. In this contending what matters for eternity, Paul uh, defines three um, um, uh, three actions that he's taking. It says that he is pressing, he is prizing, and he is putting things behind. Remember that. Paul says, I am pressing, I am prizing certain things, and I am putting certain things behind. This is the rhythm of a believer's life to constantly evaluate all the spaces that I'm in. Now, notice Paul doesn't say he's already complete. He's constantly pushing for that. He is stretching and he is straining. In other words, this is where he's putting in the sweat equity. And so here's a, here's a great space for us as believers. Where is my confidence? Ask yourself the question, what are you sweating for? What are you working hardest? What is it that, that, what is it that, that, that you must get done and you're willing to perspire to get it done? What are you prizing? In other words, what do you consider to be a win in this world? Whatever you consider to be a win and whatever it is that you're sweating for. And then here's another one. He says, I'm putting certain things behind me. In other words, what am I constantly reprioritizing? 
Because when you reprioritize something, when you stack rank life's adventures, you're always saying, nope, nope, this is the superior one. This is the one I got to protect. No matter what else comes into my system, this must come after that. Jesus will put it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you have need for them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus did didn't say, you don't need food, stop going to the grocery store. He just says, make sure you're living a life of ultimate kingdom prioritization. That is the adventure of the believer's life. He didn't say, quit your jobs and become monks. He says, just constantly fight to prioritize the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these other affairs of life begin to put themselves in order. Much of the anxiousness and frustration of the human life is an issue of prioritization. Something has emerged to front and center that should not be, and it is obscuring your view of God, and it is overcasting, it's casting a shadow on what you should be trusting and believing. It has become the biggest thing in the room, not because it is the biggest thing in the room, it's become the biggest thing in the room because it has become the primary focus. Everybody in here is bigger than this napkin, but I cannot see you because it's where I put my head down and what I'm looking to. And so, whatever it is that makes me press, whatever it is that makes me, whatever it is I've chosen to prize, whatever it is that makes me reprioritize other relationships and things in my life, this has become the source of my security and potentially even competing to become my salvation. Think about that. Whatever it is that, that makes me press for it, whatever it is that, that I prize, and whatever it is that makes me reprioritize other places in my life, that thing is competing to be the source of my security and salvation. And so I just want you, as a result of today's message, to consider the source. Consider Paul's weighty example and difficulty. Consider that. And I want you to consider not only who sang rejoice to you, but I want you to consider the source of his joy. I also want you to consider as you think about the source of your joy and where you gain your greatest security and confidence from in life, I want you to think about this. You're not unspiritual. You're not unholy. You're not some kind of bad person. All of us do it. We are born to place more confidence in the things that we have bought and the things that we have built. But we are born again in Christ to place full confidence in the things that he has bought and the things that he has built. The gospel is exactly, tells us the story of exactly what God has bought and what he has built. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, he has purchased our redemption. He has purchased our freedom. And when we are free in Christ, no four walls um, or any grievous circumstances can fully imprison Paul. That's why he can say, for me to, that's why he can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. These walls can't hold me because my freedom has already been purchased. I'm actually a slave of Christ and a prisoner for Jesus. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. Because he's constantly reevaluating even the most minute aspects of life in light of his life in Christ. And he never views himself as having arrived. He's always pushing and pressing. So the gospel is what God has built. The gospel is what God has bought. It tells the story of how the Lord has actually built for himself a church, placed Christ as its head, and oh, big surprise, the church's body is actually us. And so the appeal is put your confidence in what God has built and bought, not what you are building or in what you 
are buying. Make the shift. I want to spend some time praying for us because I believe that every single day, the reason that this is oppressed, the reason that this is a pride, the reason that this is a striving is because every single day something new is competing for my confidence and my allegiance. I, as long as I am bound, as long as you and I are bound in this body, we will have competing interests and therefore we must prize. We must strive to press. We must strive to prioritize the kingdom of God above all else so that our confidence is there. That confidence is not just one that will set it and forget it. I want to pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, you know the room. You know every single person in the room. And you know how each and every one of us, oh God, that, that has named the name of Jesus, we know you as our Lord and Savior. You also know that there are regular things competing for our focus and attention. You know, Lord God, that while we trust you as our Savior, sometimes our confidence shifts and drifts to other things, shifts to our, the size of our savings account, shifts to the address on the front of our home. It shifts to the career that we built. It shifts to some other cultural preference. Oh God, you know how easy it is for us as a people to shift our confidence and trust and faith. Would you pull our hearts back? Would you allow us to see even the expiration date on some of those other things that we built our confidence in? Help us to understand that until we place full confidence in your son, Jesus Christ, that until we place full faith in him, all other places where we put our confidence will let us down and expire and will leave us hanging. There will never be enough. Lord God, only you can make that revelation. I can't make the argument. I can make the statement, but Lord God, you have to make it true. Search us and help us to see that. I also, Lord God, want to pray for the person in the room who is listening to this and recognizes that their joy is always in constant fluctuation. And that the reason that their joy is in constant fluctuation is because they do not have a foundation in Christ. They may have a foundation in religion like Paul did. They may have a very robust resume of past religious experiences, just like your servant Paul. But they have yet to put faith in Christ because they didn't think they needed to as long as they were morally compliant. They thought they were a good, upstanding citizen, not breaking any laws, paying taxes on time, uh, taking care of their children, providing for their family, going to work faithfully, checking all of the boxes of complete and total compliance. Lord God, and that person is realizing that even though they seem to have taken all the right steps, gotten their degree, waited, Lord God, before they uh, um, uh, took on certain adventures in life, they've saved up a nice account and now they're sitting at their desk and day by day they still have a deflated joy because their confidence is in the wrong place. They've accumulated all of the trinkets and the stuff that you, that, that we said as a culture make for the good life and no oh God, they are sitting there yet waiting for more. Heavenly Father, if that person is in the room, would you appeal to them in a way that only you can? If you are that person, if that's your situation, I, I want to beg and ask you I want to beg and ask you to just do something with me. I want you to just pray this prayer with me. Father God, I let go of everything else that I've placed faith in other than you. And while I may not know what this looks like to trust you, I want to do it now. I want to put all my eggs in your basket. I don't know what it means to count my career as lost that I might gain Christ. But Lord God, there's something about that statement that is standing up in my heart and I know I need to do it. 
Lord God, my family heritage is very fond to me. I've taken a lot of pride in who I am and, and who I was in, in, in my parents and based on my last name. But Lord God, I'm recognizing now that that cannot bring me everlasting joy. I cannot rejoice. Man, if you're praying like that, if I, if I talk too fast and you couldn't keep up and you just know, Lord Jesus, I need you. And I need you like I never needed you before. And I realize now I don't have you. If that's a prayer that you're praying, talk to the Lord in your own way. Lord God, would you meet the people in the place that they need? For the person that does know you, but they've drifted, Lord God, would you, would you draw them back and put that full faith and confidence in you? Lord God, this is our prayer in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you prayed either one of those prayers in any way, shape, or form, wanting to make a dynamic shift in life, putting your confidence in Christ, I would love to see you. And if my personality is too big and you don't want to see me, would you just go see one of the, the, the prayer people on our team, whoever. Don't be scared of me, though. Um, but, but, I mean, just prayer team, would you put your hands up? If you're in here, you're part of the prayer team. You see these, these clusters of hands going up? There's just somebody in every single section. Man, if you prayed a prayer that says, Lord, I want to put my confidence in you, and, 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 and this is new, it's fresh, I don't know all of the nuts and bolts, but I know it needs to be done. If that was you, would you please go see after the service one of these people that had their hands up. They're putting them up again one more time. I appreciate you. Man, let's worship the Lord in spirit and in truth.